Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And uh, do turn back to that reading from 1 Corinthians 15, page 1157 in the Church Bibles. We are, in fact, just looking at the very last verse of that reading as we come to an end of 1 Corinthians 15. And as we turn to that reading, let's pray for God's help to understand it and indeed to live it out. Father, we thank you for the tremendous promises that we have been uh, learning about uh, in your word from 1 Corinthians 15 over these last few weeks. We thank you for this certain hope we have of a glorious future. And we would pray tonight that as we think again about what our future is like and what is in store for us who believe in Christ, please would you help us to live now in the present as you would have us live. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. It was, I guess, eight years ago or so to the day, um, but I can still remember very clearly as if it was yesterday, a conversation that I had. I was on a placement whilst at uh, Bible College. I was at a little small local church in North London. And if I'm honest, I was finding the placement uh, very difficult. Uh, It wasn't at all what I expected And on this particular morning of the conversation that I had, I was feeling particularly out of sorts. Uh, Maybe it was because I was the only guy at a mum's and toddler's coffee morning, and I was feeling particularly out of place. That's how it does feel if you are a single guy in that uh, particular context. Uh, But it was more than that. I was feeling out of place uh, in the whole placement at this little church. I guess I had misjudged just how hard it was to do um, Christian ministry in that context, and I was discouraged. I was on the back foot. And that morning, I found myself chatting to a newcomer, a visitor, a lady who had never been uh, to that morning before. She wasn't a Christian, and uh, after a very pleasant chat about the weather, she asked me the obvious question. Why are you here at a mum's and toddler's morning? And uh, I, I explained that I was trained to be a vicar. And in an instant the sunshine vanished. And she looked me in the eye. And this is what I remember to the day. She said, why? 
She said, you're young. You have your whole life in front of you. You could do things with your life. And then she said it. She said, why waste your life being a vicar? I uh, said something in response. I'm not sure what I said. I I stumbled. I I, I muttered something to her. Uh, It wasn't a good response. I'm not even sure what I said to her. But uh, I was on the back foot. I I was uh, overwhelmed by her bluntness. I guess her aggressiveness. But more than that, I was also wondering the very same question deep down inside my heart. Why am I here? Is it worth the hassle? Now, in a room this size, I guess most of us here will never be uh, a vicar. Uh, I guess most of us also will not be a single man in a mum's and toddler's coffee morning. Um, But my guess is that if we've been a Christian for any length of time, that in whatever context we find ourselves in, in whatever age and stage of life, whatever our gifting and our ability and our careers and our backgrounds, my guess is that all of us, or at least most of us, at some point will have asked ourselves that question deep down inside. Is it worth it? Is it worth the hassle of putting Christ first, of of living our lives for him? Is it worth the hassle of speaking up for Jesus, perhaps in the office place or with our mates at school, at uni? Is it worth the hassle of all the, the preparation for the small group study or looking after the young ones on a Sunday morning? Is it worth the hassle of trying to squeeze these things into a busy life and a busy diary? Is it worth the hassle? And at times, my guess is we have all felt that it's not. Just as I felt that one morning eight years ago. We've been seeing over the last few weeks that uh, the big issue in 1 Corinthians 15 is not whether the resurrection of Jesus has happened. Uh, No, everyone agrees that has happened, Paul and the Corinthians. No, the big issue in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Corinthians were getting uh, in a model about was how to connect the great event of the resurrection of Jesus, which they did agree uh, agree upon, with their own lives. They weren't very good at connecting the dots of seeing the implications in their lives. And we've seen throughout these last few weeks, in a number of ways, how the resurrection of Jesus transforms our hope and our lives. And tonight, as we come one last time to 1 Corinthians 15, we see one final great and glorious connection that there is between the resurrection of Jesus and our lives. And the connection is this, as we focus on verse 58. The resurrection of Jesus transforms how we should live our lives in the present. Look at verse 58 with me. Paul says, therefore, in other words, in light of all that he's been saying to the Corinthians about this certainty of a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and also, therefore, their own bodily resurrections in the future. Therefore, Paul says, because we are certain about that future, he says, verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Now, now Paul's not saying at this point, okay, so you believe in a a physical resurrection, uh, great, well then, let's draw the curtains over on our front sitting room and let's start the kettle and make a cup of tea and sit down for the long wait until Christ returns. That's not what he means by when he says, stand firm, let nothing move you. No, what does he mean? He continues. 
Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. You see, a person who is firmly convinced about the reality of a future physical resurrection is someone who is now in the present giving themselves abundantly, extravagantly, fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Verse 58 continues. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul puts it in the negative here, uh, not because he's uncertain about uh, what he's saying or kind of cautious on the back foot, but rather to underline just how certain he is about what he's saying. He's saying, no, for certain, be in no doubt, be utterly convinced that your labor in the Lord is totally and always, everywhere, at every time, and every season, always worth it. Do you see the connection? When we are firmly convinced about the resurrection of Jesus and therefore our own future resurrection, then that should transform how we live now in the present, today, this week, here in Sheffield. Well, to help us unpack what this all means for us tonight, I want to ask uh, two questions uh, to unpack this verse for us tonight. Uh, The first question is this, uh, what is Paul urging us to do in this verse? Verse 58 again, uh, Paul said, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul says that we are to work, we are to labor now in the present because of this resurrection hope. Now we know from the rest of scripture that it is good and right um, to do work in general. Uh, Throughout the scriptures we understand that it is good and right to use our creativity and our productivity to to rule over God's good worlds. Work is good in that broad and general sense and there's lots of places in scripture that tells us how and why we should do that general work. But when Paul talks about work and labor here in 1 Corinthians 15, he's not talking about that general wide sweep of work. No, he has a specific view of work in this context. To help us understand what he's talking about, in the surrounding verses, we see a number of people who we're told are working and laboring. And as we look at how they work and labor, we understand what it means for us to work and labor. So here are a couple of worked examples from 1 Corinthians Uh, Turn back to verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15. And we look at Paul as an example. So over the page, uh, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and by his grace to me uh, was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. See the word uh, work, worked, the same word he uses later on to talk about laboring. Paul says, I'm a worker. Paul is laboring amongst the Corinthians. What is he doing? Verse 11, he is is preaching. He is explaining to them uh, the message of Jesus. Uh, For Paul, that is work. That's one example. Uh, Flick forward to chapter 16, and we see the example of Timothy. So 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10, Paul says, If Timothy comes to you, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. Timothy also is a worker, same word. He is laboring um, amongst the Corinthians, or he will be if he comes, 
just as Paul worked. I take it, therefore, that he's doing what Paul was doing, preaching the gospel, passing on the good news of of Jesus to uh, people. One last example of work. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. Stephanus. You know that the household of Stephanus were among the first converts in Acacia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins us in the work and labors at it. Do you see? Work and labor. Uh, What is uh, Stephanus and the household doing? He is serving the saints. He is building them up. He is looking after the needs of the saints, the people of God. And so that's what I think Paul means when he talks about work and labor. He means that particular kind of work where people bring God's word to bear, the message of Jesus, for the purpose of conversion, people meeting Christ, but also for the building up of the saints, encouraging Christians. That is the particular kind of work and laboring Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul would have us now in the present to give ourselves fully to this working, this laboring, this caring for people, this investing in and nurturing and looking to the needs of people particularly. Uh, This is not to say that every single person here tonight will become a church worker or should die trying to be a church worker. No, God gives us different gifts and calls us to work in different ways. But to each of us, he would say to us, we should be working, laboring to this end in whatever context we find ourselves in. Whether it is in the office, bringing God's word into the office, telling people about Jesus, with our mates at school, in the small group, bringing God's word to bear, encouraging the saints, equipping them, serving them. Maybe it's on Sunday morning as we teach the little ones at Sunday school. Bringing God's word to bear to them, investing in those young lives. Paul says that we are, each of us, to give ourselves abundantly, energetically, enthusiastically to this great work of investing in people. We saw last term, looking at at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that the body of Christ doesn't just grow when one or two people stand at the front and preach. Oh, that matters a lot. But Paul's vision of the church is that each of us are to speak the truth and love to one another, building up one another, caring for one another, looking for the needs of one another. And I think that is a sense that Paul has here as he thinks about the laborers, the workers. He wants all of us to be laboring, working, speaking the truth and love to one another, edifying one another, building one another up. This might mean picking up the phone and giving someone a ring tomorrow morning just to encourage them, to speak some truth to them. It might mean, as I said, helping out on Sunday morning with the little ones, teaching them about Jesus, encouraging them in the faith, modeling to them how to live a Christian life in our small groups, in those informal conversations after our time together tonight. There was one lady in the church I used to work at many years ago who was a tremendous example to me of someone who worked, who labored well. Uh, she was, uh, can I say, advanced in years. Uh, she was very frail. She couldn't actually leave the house unless someone helped her down the steps and gave her a lift somewhere. She couldn't physically do much work, practically, at that level. But she did something amazing. Every time I saw her, she'd ask me how I was doing. She, she'd ask me what I was planning to do that week. And she'd say, how can I pray for you? 
Where are you speaking? Who, you, who are you investing in? How can I pray for that work? And I knew she prayed for me because whenever I saw her next, she'd always ask me, oh, how did that little talk go? Or how did that little conversation go? You see, she had remembered and she had prayed. And not only was she encouraging me by her prayers, but she was doing great work as she prayed, investing in people. And she wasn't, I wasn't the only person that she blessed that way. As I spoke to others in the staff team again and again, they said how they had a similar experience with that lady as she worked and labored uh, in her own way, helping the work of the gospel, uh, praying for it in the lives of others. But it is hard. There's a reason why Paul calls it work and labor. Uh, the word for labor has that sense of a task which involves personal suffering. It is difficult. It comes at some personal cost to the one who works. And we feel it, don't we, at times, as we seek to serve the Lord this way. I don't know what it is. In the hours of preparation, as we try to get the Sunday morning material ready for the young ones, trying to work out how to explain the Bible to them, maybe in the craft that we're doing with them, trying to encourage a friend who doesn't really want to be encouraged by us in the ways of the Lord, the hours spent prepping the Bible study that, that, that no one sees, the hours spent praying for people under our care, standing up for Christ at school and the workplace, it's not easy. It will come at some personal cost, at trying to squeeze in, at serving the body of Christ in a, when our diaries feel busy. It will be hard. And that is perhaps why we are often tempted to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Perhaps we can't see the fruit of the work. Perhaps it just feels so hard and we wonder, is it worth it? So what will keep us going with this work, this labor And that leads me on to our second question tonight. So our first question was, what is Paul urging us to do? The second one is, how does the resurrection spur us on? Well, here are a few things we've seen from 1 Corinthians 15. There is, in fact, so much I could say tonight. Here are just a few highlights from a much wider section that we could talk about. Because there is a resurrection, we know That the gospel is true. It's such an obvious point, but I think we need to hear it again and again and again. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that the gospel is true. Uh, We've heard again and again, haven't we, over the last few weeks as the the campaign for the election was uh, conducted, as various uh, people lobbied for our support, as they um, uh, broadcast their manifestos and made great pledges to us about what they would do if we elected them. We've heard uh, time and again about the kind of promises that humans have offered us in terms of a better future. You know, the the red lines that they wouldn't cross at any cost if there was a a coalition government. All kinds of promises again and again about how the scenarios would work out in the future. About a a fairer society and more wealth for everyone and better education and better health care. We've been bombarded with promises. And I don't know about you, but the more and more I hear the promises and the ambitions and the plans, the more and more I become cynical and think, can it really happen Can you really deliver this amazing picture of the future? Of course, this new government just elected, time will tell whether they can. But history tells us that no human can deliver the kind of promises that we've heard being made in the last few days. And so I think often we become cynical about promises, cynical about the good life, 
we think, well, it can't be that good. There must be a catch. It won't work out that way. And as Christians, I think that cynicism can invade our own understanding of the gospel. We hear the good news of Jesus, sins forgiven, uh, a life washed, raised to a new life. And we think, is it really true? Is it really that exhaustive and that effective? Will I really stand before the throne of glory on that final day, completely washed, completely forgiven, cleansed of all, all my sins? Of course, one of the great differences between any politician and the risen Lord Jesus is that he has already kept his promise. Politicians might make great claims about the future. Jesus makes a great claim about what has already happened. Because the resurrection of Jesus in the past, Paul says, is proof that the gospel is true, that our sins have been forgiven. He says that in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ had not been raised, then we are still in our sins, but he has been raised. Therefore, we are not in our sins. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. The gospel is true. This means that when we talk about Jesus to our friends, to our colleagues at work, to our neighbors across the fence, we are not talking about some kind of wishful thinking or some promise we hope will happen. We are talking about something altogether different. We are talking about concrete reality. Because the resurrection has happened, the gospel is true. And so as those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, we are to be those who have tremendous confidence that there is a way for sins to be forgiven, for a broken lives to be washed and cleansed, for there to be confidence on that final day as we stand before the throne of glory, that we are loved and accepted. And here surely is great motivation to be about the Lord's work telling people about Jesus for we have a wonderful certain promise to tell the world the gospel is true well next because there is a resurrection we know that the best is yet to come the best is yet to come look I I know that I struggle to believe this Uh, I might have a vague sense in my mind at times about what uh, the new creation will be like and I, I know that it'll be It'll be good, but often I'm not excited about it. I'm not overwhelmed by it. And so I guess at times I wonder if it'll be perhaps boring or maybe scary. It's unknown. Or maybe I will wish that actually I was back in, in the old life uh, now. I think often when we think about eternity, uh, we don't get as excited as we should. And we think that perhaps, just perhaps, this life now in the present is as good as it gets. We think that actually this life now is the only chance we have or perhaps the best chance to squeeze in the most happiness, the most fun, the most kind of life we can because when we get to eternity, it's just not going to be quite as good. Now, we wouldn't say it that way, but I wonder if deep down inside we think that way. And so we spend our lives now trying to maximize our security and our happiness and our fun and our enjoyment in life now in the present because we don't think the best is yet to come. And I do think this is a huge danger for us here tonight because we live in a particularly wealthy part of this country. And we live in a particularly wealthy country in the context of this world. And we live in a particularly wealthy moment in history. And if there's anyone in the course of history who would struggle with this, then it would be us with all the wealth that we have, all the opportunities for comfort and ease of life 
the opportunities to seek material happiness. We have perhaps the biggest opportunity ever to seek these things. And so if any Christian in the course of history is bound to be tempted to live for the moment now in this life, I wonder if it's us. And so we need to remember that the best is yet to come. If we don't, we will be like those in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 32 who say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let us make the most of this life for the future is not as good as we would hope it to be. And of course, when we think that way about life and the future, then what do we have to offer people in our neighborhoods, in our, in our mates at school? Why is the gospel that good? If we think this life now is the, as good as it will get, then why bother living for Jesus for eternity? I guess I have an image in my mind of, um, we've got, a, I guess, a, a slightly old car. It's, I guess, 10 years old. It, it runs just fine, but it, it's not exciting. It's a, it's a Honda Jazz. I'm told the average ownership of a Honda Jazz is um, 75. It's a, it's a stable car. Um, it's not very impressive or very exciting. Um, imagine I were just to go around to a neighbor of mine down the road who had a brand new BMW M3 sports car, you know, high performance, not the 60 in five seconds, all the latest stability, traction control, air conditioning, whatever it is. And I say to them, yeah, what do you think? Fancy a swap? You know, I've got this Honda Jazz, not the 60 in, I don't know, actually 16 seconds, whatever it is. Your BMW, do you want us to do a swap? They wouldn't do it, would they? The BMW is much more fun. It's a much better car. And I think at times as Christians, we talk about our future and eternity, and we're kind of apologetic. We think, well, yes, there is life after death, but it's, it's not that exciting. It's kind of boring. It's kind of like a Honda Jazz. And actually, this life now is, well, it's just more exciting. Why would you swap? Where is the urgency if that's how you understand eternity? But Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 15, because there is a resurrection coming, because there is a bodily, physical resurrection, the best is yet to come. We should be people who are impatient, fidgety, so excited we can't sit still as we think about what lies ahead in the new creation. We should be people who are overwhelmed, dazzled, Excited, ecstatic, enthusiastic about what lies ahead in a world where there is no pain or suffering, where these bodies don't let us down, where there is no sin that breaks relationships and friendships, where work is how God made it to be, where we have bodies which are glorious as God made our bodies to be. We should be dazzled and wild and fidgety looking forward to that future because the best is yet to come. And when we get that future hope clear in our minds that what lies ahead is so overwhelmingly better than our present, then comes the urgency. Because there is only one way to experience that better future. It is through trust in Jesus Christ. Our friends and family won't get there unless they trust in Christ. This life now is just a pale shadow of what is to come. And if they are not trusting Christ, then what lies ahead is terrible for them. And so when we believe the best is yet to come, then we find we have a tremendous urgency in our present labors, do we not? We have a wonderful future to tell people about. It is glorious and spectacular. It is as good as we could dream. And of course, if we believe that the best is yet to come, well, then we don't mind a little bit of hardship now, do we? We don't mind foregoing a little bit of comfort. We don't mind a few 
sleepless nights worrying about our friends and family. We don't mind a little bit of extra prep preparing the Bible studies or that extra phone call to care for a friend in need. We don't mind giving of ourselves and feeling tired and exhausted, do we? Because this moment is just a moment in the context of eternity. And when we understand the best is yet to come, we find a tremendous motivation to be workers, laborers now. Finally, because there is a resurrection, we know people are eternal. People are eternal. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, uh, once wrote this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, would be, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is an astonishing quote, isn't it? It is astonishing to think that here tonight in this room looking around, we are surrounded by beings who are eternal. We are all eternal. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that there is life beyond the grave for everyone. And for some, there'll be a a glorious eternity. For others, there'll be one of horror. And we have a role now to help encourage and spur on and inspire each other to become increasingly creatures that we will be in the future, creatures of glory, creatures made like our Redeemer, creatures perfected and washed and cleansed and holy. And every conversation, every Bible study, every little word in season, every prayer, every uh, word of encouragement that we can offer our brothers and sisters now in this life is part of an eternal journey, an eternal work. We are helping prepare our eternal brothers and sisters for their future. Which means that every little conversation, every moment with the young ones, teaching them about Jesus, every conversation with a colleague at work, we're dealing with eternal people. And that work matters eternally. So it's worth writing the cards. It's worth making the phone call, the emails. It's worth offering hospitality. All the work done in building up our fellow brothers and sisters, helping them to become more like Christ, helping them to keep going in their pursuit of Christ. All these things is help done to eternal beings who one day will be glorious when we meet each other again face to face in the new creation. Working with people can be hard and tiring. It can be messy. We don't know what we'll find if we start to share lives with people. Uh, Sometimes we don't see any change in people who we care for and nurture. Sometimes we think, well, I'm just not very good at it. You know, I've tried to encourage someone, but they haven't really ended up feeling encouraged. Or, you know, I've been journeying with someone for a year, but actually they're still in the same place as they were when I started. And I just don't think I'm making any difference in their lives. It is hard to keep going with people at times. But I think if we could see this eternal perspective on people, then we will know that one day when we see them face to face again in glory, we will understand 
that however, however faltering our conversations, however imperfect our advice and encouragement, however imperfect our love and care for them was, we had an impact for good for eternity, which has helped to make them who they are in the new creation. Because there is a resurrection, we know people are eternal. And so here we have a great motivation to keep going, to keep laboring, to keep working. Because we are working with things of eternity, with people who will last. And this also means that we have here, I think, a motivation to say the hard things, the tricky things with a brother or sister. There will be times when all of us need to hear a word in season about an area of our lives where we haven't quite got it right. We need another brother and sister to say, do you know, I just think that in that area, you're not seeing things correctly. Paul himself is doing that for the Corinthians. He's helping them to see how in their, in their sex life and in their community life and how they come together, that they're not getting it right. He's loving them by telling them that. And he cares enough for them because they are eternal beings to help them grow. And that might mean that we pluck up the courage, lovingly, cautiously, kindly, to just chat to a brother or sister and to help them grow not just to leave them in their sin, because they are eternal beings. The resurrection of Jesus should transform how we live now in the present. That's the final great connection of 1 Corinthians 15. As I finish tonight, I want to leave all of us, including myself, with this question. I've been asking myself this question all week. It is a painful question. It's not a question you can answer in one moment tonight. Live with it this week. Talk about it. Pray it through. The question is this. What am I doing now in the present with people that is difficult and demanding because I have a future hope? What am I doing now in the present with people that is difficult and demanding because I have a future hope. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you once again for the, these precious words, words of truth and of promise and of certainty. Father, we thank you that we have a wonderful risen Lord Jesus to follow. Thank you for that day when we stand before the throne of glory and see him face to face. And Father, would you now make us people of great industry, great labor, of great work, knowing that our future is certain. Please, would that future hope transform how we spend our time and our priorities and our diaries that we may be people who make a great difference now for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.